Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and this time that we can come into your presence, Lord, that we can worship you. I ask now as we turn to this passage, Lord, that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts. Lord, we ask that you would make us more like Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Now, Pastor Mark has done a fantastic job building excitement for this sermon. Now that I have this really neat title of licentiate, which makes a lot of us uncomfortable to say and to hear it, uh, there's this expectation that somehow this sermon will be really different from what I've preached in the past. Uh, and I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I actually don't feel that different. I feel like the same guy. But maybe I've set the bar just so low that anything is an improvement at this point. But it is a bit intimidating to think that even more is expected of me now. And so this week, I kind of had this idea, maybe I can cheat the system a little bit. And my plan was really simple. What I'll do is I'm going to pick a passage, a sermon text that is just so glorious, so incredible, that the sermon just simply has to be better. And when I told Christine about my plan and told her the text that I have, she said, yeah, that sounds, that sounds great. This is a fantastic passage. In fact, this is such a great passage. You can probably just get up and read it, say amen, and then drop the mic. It almost sounded like she didn't want me to get up and preach this morning. But I, I don't know. Either way, uh, if I could pick an expectation for you moving forward... I'd go for something maybe in between what Pastor Mark has set up and what my wife has encouraged me with. But today we are entering into what someone might call a, a mic drop passage. One that would be good to commit to memory, to study, to turn to regular, regularly. It's one of those famous and, and really beautiful passages in the Bible. But as we look at it, I'll be the first to warn you that it's not an easy passage. In fact, it's really, really difficult. 
I mean, if we just think about the content, it asks us to think beyond our own capabilities. It asks us to move beyond space and time and limitations that completely bind us. To think of a God who, who created these things as beyond these things and yet chose to enter into our limitations. To think of Jesus Christ who being rich chose to become poor so that through His poverty we might become rich. More than just stretching our minds. What we see here is that Paul uses this passage to urge the church to pursue something that is incredibly unnatural to us. True Christian unity that's accomplished in humility and exemplified in Christ. I mean, if we wanted to boil it down to a sentence, we might say this. Paul calls the church to the same love and the same mind of Christ. These are tall orders. And as we walk through this passage today, I'll just give you sort of my outline. Uh, We have three things. One, we'll look at the source of our unity. Two, we'll look at the marks and the obstacles to Christian unity. And then thirdly, we have this ultimate picture of the ultimate humility of Christ. But by way of introduction, it may help for us uh, just to sort of understand and get into this passage by looking at some of the basics. So Philippians is a letter that was written by Paul who is in prison. He's probably in Rome and he's writing to this church that's in Philippi. Now, Paul made at least two trips to Philippi uh, that you can read about in Acts. Uh, And on his first trip, you see in Acts 16, a lot happened. Uh, Paul was was doing his missionary journey and and he wasn't able to go where he wanted to go. And and he had a vision of the Macedonian man uh, calling for Paul to come and help them. And so Paul and his companions go to Philippi and preach the gospel. And what's interesting is we meet three people that probably make up the backbone of this church and they come from very, very different places. First, they they show up in town and Paul and his companions meet Lydia, the seller of purple, a a business lady, uh, and she comes to know the gospel and brings the people into her house. She's very rich. Second, Paul and Silas are going around and they're preaching the gospel and there's this girl and she's a slave and she's possessed by a demon and she's calling out after the, the Paul and Silas and saying, these guys are proclaiming the gospel, the kingdom, listen to them. And, and after a time, Paul gets really tired of this. He gets annoyed and he casts out the demon. This is great for the slave girl, but her owners are really upset and they throw Paul into prison. You remember what happens when Paul and Silas were in prison. They were singing praises to God at night. The whole place was shaken with an earthquake. All the doors were opened and the shackles fell off. And as this Roman guard, this professional killer, is about to kill himself because he thinks he's failed in his job, Paul and Silas say, stop, we're here. They proclaim the gospel. He becomes a Christian and he and his family are baptized. After this, Paul is you know, kicked out of town and he moves on. And so Paul is writing back to these Philippians. And we get the sense that everything's going pretty well for them. See, Paul has great joy and is encouraged by their growth in the gospel. 
After some initial greetings and updates at the beginning of the letter, Paul enters into a section into which our passage fits. In chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the Gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith in the Gospel, and not frightened by your opponents. See, Paul here is talking to these believers, these people in Philippi that have responded to the Gospel in faith. Even though the believers in Philippi were an incredibly diverse socioeconomic group, it seems like they have nothing in common. And yet, God has brought them together. God has has formed this church. They know and they cling to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior which is the glue that binds them. And Paul is exhorting them to live in a manner worthy of the Gospel that they have heard. So the first thing that Paul goes to is he says to their, he wants them to have unity against the world that's coming against them from those that are outside the church. He calls them to stand firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one another for the faith in the Gospel. We have this picture of this group of people standing in battle formation it's like their arms are linked and they're moving together in this battle here they are this pocket of resistance a city on the hill a light to the city of philippi they're under attack but paul encourages them to keep going work together be a team he's like a a general Or maybe like a coach who's calling out from the sideline. He can't go do their work for them, but he can call out encouragement to them and tell them, keep going. See, Paul is really, really encouraging, which tells us that the Philippians must be doing a pretty good job taking care of each other and standing in unity against the outside world. But while they stand together against outside forces, Paul senses that there's some internal rumblings within the congregation itself. And so he turns here in chapter 2, calling the Philippian church toward inward peace. And notice how he starts. He starts with the source of their unity in verse 1. Look at verse 1 with me. Paul says, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Now, Paul's words here uh, may seem a little bit strange. Uh, because, but the point that he's making is that look at all of these things that are yours in Christ. Look at all the benefits that God has given to you. He has blessed you with everything that you need. Now let these things flow through you that they can have their full effect. Because you have this encouragement in Christ and comfort from love and participation in the Spirit and affection and sympathy, because you have all these things, pursue unity. You see, the content of the Gospel message is Christ who was given to us by the Father and then was applied to us individually and corporately by the Holy Spirit. See, believers find encouragement and comfort, and love, and communion with God as all of these things are poured out into them. 
You can think of it like believers are like cups and God is like a faucet that is pouring all these things into them. And as these cups fill to the brim and begin overflowing, they're spreading, they're stretching, and they're reaching out to others and they're connecting to one another with the same love, affection, comfort, encouragement that they have already received themselves. And so Paul reminds us that Christian unity is given through the overflow of the Spirit's work in our lives. See, Paul doesn't tell believers that they need to manufacture these things within themselves. But instead, he points them to the source, to the God who graciously gives them all of these things. He reminds believers that we're not to hoard these things up for ourselves or keep them to ourselves, but rather we're to let them pass through us that we may bless one another the ways that God has blessed us. This is incredibly helpful for us to remember in our own pursuit of unity here at Grace. I love this church. And I love the combination of people that God has brought together. See, like the Philippians, we're different from one another. We think differently. We act differently. We have different interests. And as we together pursue more grace and more depth and more community, we're reminded that we must be bound together by God. See, if we resolve to work hard in and of ourselves, in our own strength and in our own power, we'll never receive, we'll never succeed in finding true, lasting unity. Because people are, we're all prone to burn out. We're prone to fade. We're prone to break down. See, time is a great disintegrator. And as Neil Young reminds us, rust never sleeps. Instead, we must look to God and His continual work in our lives to sustain us and bind us together. So Paul begins by reminding believers of the source of their unity in God's work. However, he also notes that there's still some work to do. See, if you look at this phrase in verse 2, complete my joy. And that's a, an amazing pastoral line. Like in one sense, Paul is telling the Philippians that he has great joy in who they are and what they're doing. That they've experienced God's love. That they've experienced His comfort. That there's a participation that they share in the Spirit. That they're doing well. And Paul's incredibly pleased with what's going on here. But the joy isn't complete. You see, there's, there's still something that's lacking. There's still something that's missing. And, and so, so we're meant to ask, like, what is it? What's this thing that's missing? Well, it's the marks of Christian unity that we see in verse 2. Paul tells them, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. See, this is really Paul's central line and theme in this whole passage. See, he longs for their unified thinking and working and loving and standing together with one another in the church. See, other places, uh, Paul compares this idea of believers being formed together into a body okay, where there's many different parts. The, the, the body has many different parts and yet it's still one organism. 
And it's really simple, but it's really profound that that's what the church is. That, that we as people have been brought together and we're really diverse from each other and we all have different gifts. We all have different strengths, different weaknesses. And yet together, we, we all form one organism, one body. See, the church is in a place uh, where we come where we want to be molded into some stereotypical cookie-cutter Christian. No, we don't want everyone to look the same. We don't want uniformity because God has made us all unique and we contribute to the church in different ways. And yet, while we're not looking for uniformity, we are called to deep and lasting unity. As a church, we want to walk together, to think together, to serve together, to move in the same direction together. See, we want harmony and we want to work towards a common goal. And while we all contribute in different ways, we do all want to work to the same end. See, the church in Philippi was struggling with this. And they needed to be reminded. But honestly, which church can claim that it's gotten unity all figured out? I mean, any church that's made up of people, which is all of them, needs to strategically and continually strive towards the goal of unity. Well, there's a communal sense in which this must occur. Uh, when we look at Paul and we follow Paul's reasoning here, he points out that one of the obstacles towards oneness reside in the hearts of individuals. See, Paul doesn't give the church a method to come together, but instead tells the Philippians to each watch themselves in their own hearts. In verses 3 and 4, Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. And so, Paul here, to, to clarify what he said in verse 2, he gives us two sets of opposing mindsets. First, he compares the selfish with a self-promoting mindset to that of the, of the one that is humble. And it humbly looks out for the good of others. See, Paul knows that in our hearts and in our nature, we are prone to seeking self-advancement. Whether it's business or social, our natural inclination is to improve our status and maybe catch the spotlight and receive the praise of people. And this can be done by maybe promoting ourselves or can be done on the backs of others as we push other people down for our own benefit. See, while this is natural and we can see it all over the place in society, Paul says that this sort of toxin has no place in the church. See, difference and disagreement have a natural way of separating people. It's easy for us to think that we have everything figured out and that the next guy is either shooting from the hip or he's just plain wrong. See, this sort of thinking is stubborn and breeds a sense of superiority. Instead, Paul tells us to pursue and act humbly, counting others more significant than ourselves. See, this sort of humility is what John Calvin calls the mother of moderation. See, Calvin continues... Humility is yielding our own rights 
and giving preference to others. He says that we must give up that each one of us has in our own mind an internal king that wants to go out and claim everything for itself. And rather in conflict, we need, we need to shut that king up. We need to get him to be quiet. And we need to think about others. See, in conflict, we should suspect ourselves. We should analyze our own motives. We should seek to correct the wrongs in our own hearts. And if we do this and we do this honestly, what it leads to is it leads to a self-understanding of who we are. And it leads to humility naturally because we should be humble. But when we think about other people, we're to honor what is excellent in others. We're to see the good and rejoice in God's work in the lives of other people. And then where they're wrong and in their faults, Calvin says that we're to bury those by means of love. So Paul shows us that humility is the ultimate key to unity. That when people are committed to others more than themselves, harmony naturally follows. So Paul follows up with this. And he says, we need to look not only to our own interests, but to the interests of others. Life isn't an individual game. It's not like fantasy football or maybe bowling where we all stay in our own lanes and we we strive for our best scores, our best individual scores, not looking out to others. No, see, the Christian life is more like a team sport where we look out for each other. We anticipate each other's needs. We look and take care of each other and then we play help defense when we need to. See, success for the church comes when we pursue the success of others. Now, if people actually lived this way, how incredible would that be? I mean, could you imagine how great life would be if we took care of other people like this? I mean, the implications would be huge. I mean, this may be a really simple example, but think about like Thanksgiving meal. Okay, everyone sits down and you have all this food and everything's going well. And then you finish. Uh, If we were to look out for the interests of others, we would run to do the dishes. Not because we love to do the dishes, but because we love other people and we don't want them to have to do it. We want them to enjoy the time. But if we all kind of had this mindset, what would happen is if when we're doing the dishes, we'd look around and we would see somebody else has jumped up to take care of the food and they're putting the food away and they're getting help from other people. Someone else is sweeping the floor. Someone else is wiping off the table. See, as everyone looks to the interests of others, everything gets done really efficiently. How great would it be if we all had this mindset looking out for each other Uh, just here in this community. I mean, we would be better at praying for each other, checking up on each other, taking care of each other. At church, we would joyfully give ourselves, as we are able, to do whatever jobs needed to be done. That there would be no job that was too low or too undignified for us. But we'd all be working together, uh, which we do, right? So, so we have nursery and we have sexton duties and we have teaching Sunday school and hospitality and there's the sound people and, and there's just all of these things that are getting done. And they're all incredibly valuable because they're all moving in the same direction and following the mission of the church. At home, we would constantly be seeking opportunities 
to take care of our families, take care of our neighbors and reach out in our communities. And this would be an incredible way to live. So why is it so hard to do? Why do I struggle to look beyond myself? Well, Paul suggests that it's because we're prone to selfishness and to look out for our own exclusive self-interest. And see, while we know this about ourselves, we all know that we struggle with selfishness, it's still a huge blind spot for most of us. It reminds me when I was a teacher and, and I was working in the middle school, one of my jobs was to go in and work with uh, an English class. And I would work in small groups with these kids. And one of the stories that we read together um, was this really neat story. It had two main characters. There was this, this man, he was incredibly poor, but he was hardworking, and I guess his only possession was a horse. Great. Um, and then the other character was this girl that was she was lovely she was beautiful and she was incredibly selfish and, and kind of the point of this story this this guy really loved this girl and he was smitten with her and he would do everything for her everything that he earned he would give to her he would buy her dresses he would buy her gifts he would get her anything that she wanted but she was selfish and she never reciprocated the love she accepted the gifts. She took them, but she never actually loved him back. And as the story goes on, the, the boy and the girl are walking past the shop and she sees this, this priceless necklace and she just has to have it. Well, he's poor. He has nothing. He can't afford it. And so he has to sell that one possession that he does have, his horse. And, and so he sells this at great cost to himself and buys this necklace and gives it to this girl she takes the necklace, and guess what? She doesn't reciprocate. She's not thankful. She just takes it. The end. Man, you guys are really getting spoiled with good stories lately here in church. But this is a horrible, horrible story. But what always fascinated me was how these seventh grade students would react to this story. They would get so angry with this girl. And they would call her things like selfish and heartless and cruel. And, and, and they just they, they wanted her neck. Like they just couldn't stand this girl. And I want you to put yourself, especially adults, put yourself in, in my shoes as a young man as I'm sitting across the table from all of these teenagers and I have this ultimate Nathan moment at my disposal. Like you remember Nathan when David had sinned with Bathsheba and committed adultery and then God sent Nathan to confront David and um, he tells this parable and David's really angry at the character in the parable. And then Nathan turns the tables and he points at David and says, you are the man. Right? And so here I am sitting across from these teenagers and there's all these kids and they live in these nice homes. They wear these nice clothes. They take nice vacations. They talk on nice phones. They play on traveling sports teams. And yet, they're so thankless. And they seem so disrespectful. See, their whole life seemed to be wrapped up in their own self-absorption. And yet, they were outraged by the girl in the story. They never made the connection that in many ways, their lives reflected the, little, the girl's life. 
while I self-righteously could sit back and just enjoy this moment of irony. In moments of honest reflection, I have to admit that I'm that character too. So are we all. I mean, how many of us can honestly say that we don't struggle with selfishness and looking first and foremost to our own interests? I mean, how are we supposed to become more selfless when our hearts are so prone to being selfish? Or maybe you do love sacrificially. How are you supposed to keep from burning out when you feel like you're the man in that story and you keep giving and giving and giving and it's never reciprocated and you're being taken advantage of? Well, Paul gives us the answer by pointing us to Jesus. See, back in verse 2, he told the church, be of the same mind, have the same love. And then here in verse 5, he tells us what this should look like. It's the mind of Christ. Like, do you want to see humility at work? Do you want to see true selflessness and what that looks like? Look to Jesus. Paul says in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. And so so Paul, he takes us and he points out first this pre-incarnate Jesus who is in the form of God. And it requires us to think like this is, is God from all eternity past. Our triune God who existed in perfect happiness and holiness, self-sufficiency and love. One, one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He needed nothing. And yet from before the foundations of the world, He planned for the redemption an adoption of His people through the sending of His Son. And so Jesus, though He was in the beginning with God and was God and is God, chose not to stand on His rights or cling to what was rightfully His, but He chose to empty Himself in the Incarnation. See, Jesus didn't empty Himself by Uh, not being God, by pouring out His divinity, but rather by adding to Himself a human nature. See, it was a subtraction through addition as He took on flesh and His divinity was concealed. And this is what we celebrate at Christmas time. The glory of our coming King. The humility of our Redeemer. And the mystery of the Incarnation. How this one man, Jesus Christ, Christ dwelt both in complete divinity as the second person of the Trinity, as well as in complete humanity, so that Jesus was one person with two natures forever. See, when we celebrate the incarnate Christ, we recognize that for Him to be born at all would be a giant step down. And not just a giant step down, it would be like an infinite downward quantum leap 
It would have been, so even in like the best conditions, if he would have come to the biggest palace with the richest parents, it would have been a quantum leap. But even in his birth, we see intentionality of humility. He's born into a seemingly sinful situation. A seemingly ordinary girl in an insignificant town. And even in that town, he's not born in a house or in an inn. No, he steps down and he's born in a stable. See, coming in the form of a servant, Jesus came not to be served like he deserved, but to serve others. But Paul makes it clear like the humiliation continues from this point. It wasn't just that He came in the Incarnation. No, the humiliation continues from Christmas to Easter. See, Paul points out that Jesus went further still by becoming obedient to death. But not just any death. The cross death. This was considered the worst form of death. The cross was a painful death in which the Romans had perfected a system to make sure that the person struggled in anguish and agony for hours, even days, before they finally expired. It was a public death. The point was to be this graphic billboard so that people walking by would look and see, and no, don't mess with the Romans. This is what happens when you do that. The cross was a shameful Humiliating death. Roman citizens weren't allowed to be put to death this way, but it was reserved for foreigners. It was reserved for rebels and slaves and servants. Shameful death. We know that it's also a cursed death. God said that anyone who hangs on the tree is cursed by God. And Paul wants us to see that this is what Jesus not only endured, but that this was His plan. That it wasn't a mistake. That Jesus not only allowed this, but He chose it for Himself. That He emptied Himself and laid down His life in this way. Like in John, if you think about John, Jesus tells His disciples, no one takes My life away from Me, but I lay it down on My own. And so when we look at what Jesus deserved, Paul wants us to recognize that Jesus' divinity and position in heaven was the highest pinnacle of glory. And in contrast to this, Paul wants us to understand Christ's willful, purposeful choice to condescend to the lowest possible position when He was crucified. See, He received the hideous cross death of a rebellious slave. And He hung in our position. He hung in our place. He hung for our sin. He was the last person that should have ever been there. But He's the only person that could do it to atone for our sins and bring us back to the Father. See, in Christ... We see unfathomable love expressed in sacrifice and utmost humility. And this is the mind to which Christ calls His church. This is what we were created to be like. Created in the image of the Son of God 
in the renewal of our minds. We recognize, we see clearly, we can't follow Him exactly. But we are called to follow Him. Jesus didn't have to, but He showed us the ultimate example of humility to which every other example points to. See, when we see or are called to self-sacrifice or humility or love, like we're given the opportunity to see a small sample of what Jesus has done for us. Yes, even the greatest acts of humility are but a tiny fraction, like infinitesimally small in comparison to what He has done for us. And yet, these are the things God calls us to and they speak volumes. Sometimes others recognize it, but more often than not, they they go unnoticed. Or even maybe like the girl in the story, people may reject it or be thankless of it. But for us, we look beyond our puny acts of service as little pictures that bring us to remember our Savior's incredible service. And they bring Him back into focus for us. See, everything points us back and points our hearts towards Christ. See, burnout happens when we don't frame our little sacrifices in the picture of His great sacrifice that we can lovingly return and love God and serve Him in thankfulness. But notice like this isn't the end. See, Paul doesn't leave Christ on the cross or in the grave or in any sense humiliated. No, Paul draws this verbal parabola for us. It's a fun word, parabola. Uh, Christ is exalted. And Christ chose to empty Himself and come to the lowest point possible. And yet in our text, we see that God uh, exalts Him. He highly exalts Him back. It says, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, while Jesus exemplified humility for us, He is the King who reigns in heaven. He will receive all glory and honor and praise that is rightfully His to the glory of God the Father. In this life, Jesus shows us the upside-down nature of the kingdom. The way up is down. The way to life is through self-death. We are not called to cut our own paths in this world, but rather to follow Him in the path that He's already laid out for us. And this path isn't a lonely path, but one that we travel together, putting each other before ourselves, seeking peace and purity and unity, serving each other out of the great love that has been showered on us in Christ, poured out for us, that we can extend to one another. How do we fight selfishness and pursue unity? Through the love, the comfort, the encouragement and the affection that we have through Christ as the Spirit works it out in our lives and directs us towards humility. And where does this humility lead us? To our Savior who gave Himself up for us. 
May we look to Him in everything and together share this mind and His love. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.